The National Association of Professional Allstate Agents is suing Allstate for what it says are multiple breaches of contract. And they've enlisted prominent conservative attorney James Bob Jr., best known as the lawyer who won the Citizens United case. Agents feel like the company uh, doesn't uh, care about them anymore, even though the, uh, the agents are responsible still for the vast, vast majority of the premiums that Allstate collects. And it's time for the weekly conversation with Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. We'll talk about a house with ties to the World's Fair and more. The Chicago metro area still has the largest proportion of people with a mortgage who are seriously underwater, which means you owe at least 25% more than the home is worth on the market. And this week, we're taking listener questions. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, May 20th. In these uncertain times, it's important to have people you trust by your side. When 11,000 local business owners needed a Paycheck Protection Program loan, they turned to their Wintrust banker to secure funding because that's a relationship they can count on. Businesses are navigating some of the biggest challenges they will ever face. Wintrust is here to answer their calls. They'll answer yours too. Start the conversation at Wintrust.com slash Daily Gist. Member FDIC. Hi there, and welcome to Crane's Daily Just Live, brought to you by Wintrust. I'm Amy Guth, and I'm joined by Dennis Rodkin, Crane's residential real estate reporter, as I am every week, joined by Dennis Rodkin. Hi, Dennis. How's it going today? Great, Amy. How are you? I'm well, thanks. We've got lots of stuff to talk about, and we're doing a new thing today, which I'm excited about. We've taken some audience questions. We're going to get to those, too. But let's start with, in the fast-rising housing market, many people cannot afford to sell their homes. Tell me about this story. Yeah, so this is data that we have been reporting quarter after quarter based on Adam, the property information service reports. Chicago still has, the Chicago metro area still has the largest proportion of people with a mortgage who are seriously underwater, which means you owe at least 25% more than the home is worth on the market. That's of the top 20 cities, we have the most. And we also have the smallest proportion of people who are considered equity rich, which is to say you owe 50% or less of the property value to the mortgage company. That means we have more people who definitely can't afford to sell and fewer people who definitely can afford to sell than any other major city in America. And that's one of the things, as you and I have discussed, that is holding down our inventory of homes for sale. Inventory is tight all over America. One of the reasons it's very tight here specifically is the lack of people who can afford to sell. And one of the things a couple of years ago, I think you and I discussed, we had more seriously underwater homeowners uh, than New York and Los Angeles combined. That has changed. Now we have more than New York, Los Angeles, and Dallas combined. We have 159,400 homeowners approximately who have a mortgage and are seriously underwater on it, according to Adam. That is more than the combined numbers for New York, LA, and Dallas. That is really holding back our inventory as well as holding down our household wealth. Those people who are seriously underwater, clearly uh, their homes are not contributing to their household wealth. 
That's a really stark number. So it was New York and Los Angeles. Now it's New York, Los Angeles, and Dallas combined. Yeah. That's really significant. It is. And I think the reason for that is while our market is moving fast, our prices are going up fast. In other places, they're moving faster and going up faster. So there is, there's more space between us and other metro areas. Yeah. Well, we're going to check back on that story because there's a lot more there, I'm sure. Okay. I want to check up on another story that we talked about back in January. This is about a real estate agent from Chicago who had attended the pro-Trump events that took place on January 6th. And she is suing over an MSNBC report that she says wrongly indicated that she was charged as part of that event. Tell me about what's going on here. Well, it's not only that she says it's inaccurate, it's verifiably inaccurate what MSNBC reported. Uh, her name is Libby Andrews. On, on January 6th, she was a part-time agent for At Properties. She attended the rallies in Washington. She was fired overnight by At Properties. She was posting a lot of info, a lot of uh, things on social media about uh, this is a, this is history. You need a glass of champagne after you storm the Capitol. Um, I spoke to her that very next day. So, of course, the insurrection was on January 6th. She was fired that night. January 7th, I, I spoke to her. We had an article, and you and I talked about it, where she said, yeah, I was there. I did not see any of the violence. I actually was on the other side of the building. The Capitol was breached primarily on the west side of the building. She was on the east side um, singing We're Not Gonna Take It and other songs like that. Um, she said she didn't see any of the violence, didn't know about the, the breach until she was back at her hotel. Nevertheless, she was fired by At Properties, rehired by another smaller agency in Chicago the very same day. All that happened on January 7th. On January 10th, four days after the insurrection, MSNBC ran a graphic. Uh, they were talking about people who had been charged in connection with the riot. They ran a graphic that had 18 names and the faces of most of them. In Libby Andrews' case, they had both her name and her face. And at the top, it said, charged in connection with the riot. I see. Um, she was not charged by January 10th. She also hasn't been charged to this day. What the legal filings on her behalf say are pretty much what she told me on January 7th, which is that she was clear on the other side of the building. She didn't have anything to do with breaching the Capitol. And so what the, the, uh, her lawyers argue is that MSNBC, by including her among the charged, was, quote, branding her an insurrectionist and a criminal, and that she will suffer losses because of this. According to the case, she has lost some of her ability to do business. She's lost reputation. Now, how much of that loss is because MSNBC branded her a criminal? And how much is simply the media coverage of her attending the rallies and the other side of the building? Of course, I can't parse out. But according to her attorneys, the MSNBC publication of her as, as somebody who was charged is worth $15 million in damages. Well, she herself posted to social media. I mean, isn't this is her selfie we're looking at right now. This is her selfie, right. which she provided to us the very next day on the, the 7th of January. Um, but again... She's never been charged with any crimes, and she right. didn't say in any of her posts that she'd been charged. And MSNBC lumped her in among those who had been charged, actually said right across the top of the screen, charged with her name and face, as well as the names and faces of others. Some of them have been charged. Um, I wasn't able to go through all 18 or all 17 other than her 
and determine how many have and haven't. And I don't think that's material here. The real question is they claimed she had been charged and she hasn't. MSNBC declined to comment for our story. My next question. Yeah. They won't comment. Uh, You know, like you have said about other stories, I think we'll be coming back to this because either there's a settlement or I don't know, there's a trial. We may be following this in the future. Yeah, but you bring up an interesting issue within it, though, that I think will be interesting to follow of how much of that is based on the graphic that ran on MSNBC and how much of that is what she posted. Because as I recall, I remember when this story ran, when you first wrote it, I I remember going to her social media and I think there was like another one of champagne glasses talking about toasting pretty early in the day. And I get that she's trying to make the distinction between, hey, I wasn't part of this insurrection that stormed the Capitol. I was just back peacefully protesting. I get she's trying to make that distinction. But I think it will be interesting in a court of law to try to determine what fallout is from her posts and what is from MSNBC. The fallout from her posts was swift. That's how she got fired. Right. Is she's posting you need a glass of champagne when you've stormed the Capitol and things like that. And it was, uh, I don't know that there were clients of that properties, but it was people who knew, uh, I think her, her uh, social media profile might've said at properties and they immediately went to the heads of at properties and at properties summarily fired her. Uh, In fact, on January 7th, she told me she didn't even know uh, until at properties had already posted on its own social media that she had been fired. But yeah, so she she lost that job as a result of her own social media postings. The question is then four days later or three days after that, MSNBC claims she's been charged. This is, yeah, I think this will be an, an interesting one to sort of suss out. Yeah, I think that's the first time you've ever said suss out on this podcast, Dennis. Nice. Usually I'm just so blissed out that I don't really think. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Who isn't blissed out talking about residential real estate? Okay, so let's talk about a couple of houses. Speaking of blissed out, um, this house is really interesting. The headline, I think, is the perfect headline. The headline you put on it is, this house is in the city. No, really. Because it does not look like it. It's covered in all this beautiful greenery and these layers and levels. And what an interesting place. This is um, near the Chicago River's North Branch. And it's for sale for $1.65 million. Tell me about this place. Yeah, it's very near the Chicago River's North Branch. It, you go from this deck down through the yard and right down to the water. She has a dock. She's on Virginia Avenue in Ravenswood Gardens. She would be on the east bank of the North Branch. There are mostly two flats, mo- mostly multi-flats along her side of the river. And on the other side, it's mostly single family homes. It's a short distance. It's only a matter of several blocks where there are these houses that are right on the water, or homes, I should say, that are right on the water. And again, hers is on the multi-flat side, but she bought a two-flat, converted it to a single-family home. And what she talks about is this progression from urban out front, where you're looking at a row of two-flats, or former two-flats in her case. It's unique to Chicago, but it is also uniquely Chicago, or it's unique in Chicago, because you're living right on the Chicago River. You're living on a place that used to have, you know, burned out cars and industrial refuse dumped into it, but we have cleaned it up over the years, still probably not drinking out of it, but you could kayak from here all the way up to Wilmette and all the way down to the Chicago River in the city or or in downtown in the loop. It is such a great setting. I, on Twitter, I said, bring your own kayak and believe me, 
you know, I have a kayak and I want to bring mine right there. So she has this traditional two flat, traditional looking two flat. She's a very green architect. Under that traditional two flat, there's a garage. So you drive down from the street into the garage, which is like as modern a look for a two flat as possible. And then up at the top, you can see there's sort of a, a, a brown panel across the top. She lifted the upper part of the roof in part to get the right angle for the solar panels. And so you see this classic red brick two flat facade, but then there's Corten steel across the top. Um, which makes it even more urban. Corten steel, for example, is it, it looks like what the Picasso is made of in Daly Plaza. So uh, it really does. If you're standing on this side on the street, it really is a very urban setting. Go through the house and you're in about as wild a setting as you can get within the city of Chicago. Yeah. Oh, I, when I saw that picture, I thought there's no way this is in the city. It is, uh, I mean, it's so interesting that you kind of get the best of both worlds, right? I mean, you get, oh, you're living in the city, but you're also, you have all this beautiful green space. And I mean, imagine going out on that balcony and just being like, okay, I'm chill now. I forgot about my work day. I'm all good. Absolutely. I'm a million miles from Chicago. She sees eagles. Wow. She said there are resident eagles nearby. She sees herons. I know that a lot of people see mink in the river. She also sees kayakers and crew teams. But she also sees the brown line crossing the river. She's three. This house, even though you you know you could paddle to work if you wanted, you're also about three blocks from a brown line station. It really is sort of it really is sort of a great super Chicago location, and it also has this sort of you know it's got the looks of a classic two flat. It's a very nice use, a very nice reuse or adaptation of a historical building type. This one was built in 1914, and she redid it. Uh, I think she bought it in 2007 or 2008. So she, she redid it when it was about a century old. She's got a wood-burning stove. She's a very green architect. Um, she's got a wood-burning stove at the back that it's a special Scandinavian import that she says can heat this entire great room very comfortably. She's also got solar panels and a green roof, uh, geothermal heat, and uh, a lot of insulation. So it, it was a green rehab of this historical building. So interesting. And what a great use of color throughout it. I mean, the way she has the furniture style, these purples and oranges and reds, and then these the pop of orange in the kitchen. Fascinating. Oh, totally. And then she's, again, like when you, when you have that much glass in a house, you can't help but to kind of bring the natural world in. And this does that so beautifully. Well, in this room, one of the things I love about this room is, remember out front, she had dug out the basement and added a garage. This too is the basement. You know, you think of the two flat basement as being sort of this wheezy old thing filled with mold. And we both, we all have to go down there and do our laundry. And we're wondering, you know, is there a hatchet killer somewhere hiding behind the old giant furnace? This is the basement of this two flat. This is a family room, um, another wall of glass, like what's in the, the uh, great room one flight up. And outside the windows, you can't quite tell. There's sort of this secret garden, this Japanese garden, and then it slopes up to the yard. So she really, I mean, she really, she designed everything thinking about indoor and outdoor. Yeah, she she thought it through. Well, very interesting. Okay, so let's talk about another house. This First, one. I apologize to anybody who lives in a two flat. I don't want you to go down to the basement to do your laundry. And, oh, I, <laughs> and Dennis, on my I, account, I think there's a hatchet murderer. I almost said I'm feeling very seen right now because while my laundry is not in the basement, 
if you blow a fuse or something, you got to go down there. And every single time I open the door to the basement, I go, murder basement, because <laughs> I'm certain that a serial killer is going to pop around the corner with a hatchet and that'll be the end of me. So now that we've made that very uplifting. <laughs> I'm glad I pulled your fear right out into the center stage. Right out in front of everybody. That's fine. That's, that's confronting fear is what that is. Next week, I'll broadcast live from the basement and you can see it for yourself with my co-host, the spiders and rats. It'll be fine. Hey, don't forget, I'm sitting in my basement right now. Your basement no is way better than this. mine. I'm going to, I'm going to send you a picture of my basement after this and you're going to be like, okay, yeah, no. Yeah. You win the basement war, Dennis. Don't worry. All right. Let's talk about a place in Kenilworth. It has ties to the world's fair, which is fascinating. It took nine years to sell nine. Yeah. And, and one of the reasons I think that is unfortunate is that the people who, who sold it after nine years had bought it to save it from demolition back in the early two thousands. I'm going to forget, but I think it's either 2000 2004, they bought it. This house has so many layers of history, architectural and building industry history. Those columns you see, it looks a little bit like the like the White House. Those columns supposedly are salvaged from the World's Fair by Daniel Burnham himself, wow. who was the master architect of the World's Fair, and he gave them to the family who built this house. Suppose this, this house was built in 1896, which is only a few years after the 1893 World's Columbian Exposition. So he gives them these columns. And uh, previously, it had been reported, e even in the National Register uh, nomination for this building, that B Daniel Burnham designed the house. Turns out Daniel Burnham, Burnham gave them the columns and said, yeah, here are some ideas. And then Franklin Burnham, no relation, designed the house. Franklin Burnham designed many of the first homes in Kenilworth, including this one. So you've got both Franklin Burnham and Daniel Burnham, again, not related. And the third person involved is the man who built it was a guy named Paul Starrett, who had worked for Daniel Burnham, who did some building in Chicago. Then he leaves Chicago and he builds, among other things, uh, the Empire State Building. Heard of it. Yeah, probably <laughs> have. Um, and the, the Flatiron Building in oh, New York, where wow. he actually was working again with Daniel Burnham. So this house has all that kind of history, as well as the first owner was a music publisher whose family were very prominent music publishers in Chicago from the 1850s through at least the 1930s. So the house has a ton of history built in 1896. Then in about 2004, it's had long-term owners. It's in terrible shape. It's on Landmarks Illinois' list of endangered places, the most endangered places. And the idea was very likely a developer buys this, takes down the house and puts two on the property. So it goes on Landmarks Illinois' endangered list. And this couple comes along and says, oh no, we can't see that happen. We'll buy it. They pay $4.2 million. They do a gigantic restoration. They add this pool. They add a coach house, which has living space in it. They expand the kitchen. They update everything. They keep all the great old details. This wonderful staircase that has a big atrium and stained glass above. Really a remarkable house. And they put it on the market in 2012 at nearly $9 million, $8.95 million. That's when I met them in 2012 when they put it on the market. It looks fantastic. And then it sits on the market from April 2012 all the way through last week, 
price came down. It was at 8.95 million originally. It comes down, it comes down, it comes down. At one point I had it in a story called White Elephants. And we said that this one sort of literally is a white elephant because it's white, doesn't sell for years. And finally last week sold for $5 million. The agent wouldn't talk to me. The agent represented both the buyer, the same agent represented the buyer and sellers. Um, and the sellers I couldn't reach. They have moved to another city. So what I don't know is exactly how much they spent on the renovations. But again, they paid $4.2 million. They put in a pool. They expanded the kitchen. They built a new coach house. They redid the entire interior, all the climate and all that sort of thing. And then they sold for $5 million. There's $800,000 in between. And I suspect, but I don't know, that that's not enough to cover everything they did, let alone their carrying costs for nine years. Right. So I don't think it profited them to have saved this house. And believe me, I don't want to say that because I think it's a great house and I'm glad it was sold. And they probably did it for reasons other than money as well. But um, they didn't profit from preserving this very important house. Yeah, that's a big uh, that's a big uh, price decrease from their original listing. But let's yeah. talk about this kitchen because this is really gorgeous and it feels so old world with the exception of kind of the beams overhead. Those white beams make it feel kind of modern and airy, but you have all these very old world elements in there. You have a fireplace, you have kind of the storage bit off the, the island and then the pot rack and the stove. That's a gorgeous kitchen. It is. And, you know, it's sort of an attempt to, it, it's that idea that let's make a kitchen that they would have made in 1896 if they were living the way we do now and if they had the appliances and all we do now. So it, it's sort of trying to fit in with the age of the house, which is a, a good thing to do um, because, again, the house has so much history. You really want to, uh, well, I should say, and it's in Kenilworth. So, you know, it's a traditional styled house and you want it to look pretty traditional. Um, they did a great job. And the fact that they didn't profit is something I've mentioned a couple of times, but I do want to reiterate, they did a wonderful job with the house. And oh, for sure. we're all glad it's still there. Yeah. I mean, just the history that they jumped in and saved this house from demolition is yeah. so amazing. That's a fascinating story that these columns perhaps were at the World's Fair and touched by millions of people or millions of people passed through them and then saved by Daniel Burnham. Like that's a fascinating detail. And I'm glad the house was saved. Yeah, I am too. And, and it really is. It has sort of a regal presence on the yeah. street. And the size of that lot, you know, that's huge. Plus, they added a pool, which at the time they were doing it, pools weren't quite, they were, there was always that problem with a house with a pool was harder to sell. Now, since the pandemic, it's been so much easier to sell a house with a pool. Um, I was hoping the agent would talk to me and say something like, yeah, if it hadn't had a pool, it still would be on the market or whatever. Uh, but again, the agent wouldn't talk to me. Okay, so now we're going to do a new thing. So if you follow us on social media, you've seen us tweeting about questions for Dennis. So we're going to start doing this as long as the questions are polite, answerable, and clean enough to repeat. Let's start. We've got two today. The first one is from Marie. And Marie says, what is going to happen to the value of all these homes that are selling for over asking price or over appraised value when the market finally calms down, assuming it will calm down? Dennis, what say you? You know, so here's the thing. I think what's going to happen is people are just going to live in them longer. Um, I, I have to stay in my house longer for the value to catch up. We don't see anything. We Nobody sees any signs yet of a big crash. There are cities that seem to be in bubble territory. There are cities where prices have, 
have climbed at unsustainable rates. That does not seem to be happening to us. Almost everybody I talk to says we seem safe from that. We seem, because of course, nobody really knows what the future brings. But if price growth slows down, nobody expects it yet to reverse. We're not looking at a 2008 period where all of a sudden home values are down 35% in the Chicago area. We're looking at, they're not growing, what we believe we're looking at is they're not growing as fast as they were. Um, home price growth has been in the double digits. You and I have been talking about 17% from last year, week after week after week. We're now in territory where the home values are up 20, home sale prices are up 20% from last year, but this time last year was that sort of murky time when the pandemic really was had taken effect. So we can't really make that comparison, but um, home values have been rising fast. They may rise less fast, which is not so bad. Um, which just means if you were planning, let's say, to live in the house for two years and recap your money, you probably won't. But most of us buy planning to stay five, right, or 10. And I think what will happen is the market will catch up to you over that amount of time. I don't think we're going to have to worry that there's going to be a massive shakeout. The other reason to think about that is that lending standards are so much more uh, strict than they were in the last crash because of the last crash, lending standards are so much stricter. So even though people are paying more than the asking price, they're not, you know, they're not buying with a zero down payment or anything like that. So I think, Marie, what the answer is, is that it's just going to take a little longer for the market to catch up to these overpriced houses. And that means they'll have to sit in their house a little bit longer than they might have otherwise. The other question is from Michael. And Michael asks, I hear all the time from fellow brokers, my clients are not listing until they find a place to buy. My question is, how long can this mentality keep up until the market bottlenecks to a complete halt? I would say, um, if, you, if, you, if you don't have to, don't. But if you really want to get on the market, there are a couple things you can do. One is keep in mind, this really is a time when the sellers call the shots. So you can put in your terms, um, we want a long closing, or and you can choose in the offers, the multiple offers that come your way, you can choose the one that is most flexible on closing date. I did a story earlier this year about the whole idea of um, people doing leasebacks. I will sell you my house if I can stay in it for an extra 30 days with a lease, that sort of thing. And then the last is, I thought these were the, this was the cleverest idea I'd heard, was there was a couple who um, had gone through a couple of bidding wars. They, they lost. They knew their house would sell quickly, so they lined up an Airbnb and they sold their house, moved into the Airbnb. That gave them both the proceeds as cash to put down on their next contract and the time to breathe before finding the next house. That does mean you have to move twice move into the Airbnb and then move on. But these are some of the options for sellers who are afraid because of the speed at which things are selling. All right. Well, we will stay tuned for that. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for joining us, everybody. And thanks to our sponsor, Wintrust. And of course, thanks so much to Deputy Digital Editor Sarah Zimmerman, who produces this live stream remotely. Coming up in today's top stories, in a race for talent, Bank of America will raise its minimum wage to $25 an hour. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Here's a great way to stay in touch with Crane's Daily Gist. Subscribe to the Crane's Morning 10. It's our daily newsletter featuring the 10 biggest stories of the day. To subscribe, visit chicagobusiness.com morning 10. 
You're listening to Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. The association representing all state agents filed a lawsuit against the company, alleging a large number of practices that are costing them money and subjecting them to heavy-handed controls in violation of their contracts. The National Association of Professional Allstate Agents breach of contract lawsuit, which was filed in U.S. District Court in Chicago, is being handled by prominent attorney James Bopp Jr., a lawyer best known for representing Citizens United, a nonprofit that established campaign spending as a form of free speech speech under a highly controversial ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court. The complaint by the professional organization, as well as several former agents, claims that Allstate has interfered with potential sales and costs agents millions of dollars collectively. It also alleges that the Northbrook-based insurer is permitting independent agents to sell Allstate policies in areas already served by Allstate agents who can sell on behalf of no other carrier than Allstate. It also accuses the company of poaching new customers that agents have worked to sign up. And according to the lawsuit, all of those alleged actions violate the contract that Allstate has with its agents. Steve Daniels is reporting the story in detail for Cranes. Once again, Allstate and its agents are at war with each other. And once again, uh, the battle lines are being drawn in a courtroom. The association that represents Allstate agents filed suit against the company yesterday, alleging multiple breaches of the contract that it has with its agents. Uh, Agents for Allstate are not employees of the company. They're independent contractors that uh, require them to sell only the the insurer's policies. Uh, But those contracts give the company some leeway to try to get the agents to do what it wants them to do. Uh, This lawsuit alleges that on multiple fronts, the company has gone well beyond what it's allowed to do in that contract and is taking very heavy-handed approach with its agents that's costing them money, reducing their commissions, and reducing what they get paid when they decide to sell their businesses. This is the culmination of really several years of frustration that agents have had with various steps that the company has taken to reduce their commissions, particularly for servicing uh, their existing clients. So when those clients renew, the agents get paid something. Allstate has pivoted to uh, jumpstart growth that has been uh, lacking within the company. It's a very, very profitable insurer, but it has lagged uh, faster-growing rivals like Progressive and Geico for many, many years. And agents feel like the company doesn't care about them anymore, even though the agents are responsible still for the vast, vast majority of the premiums that Allstate collects. The executive chairman of co-working company WeWork said he's seen demand bounce back in the aftermath of the pandemic and that inquiries from potential customers exceed what they were before nationwide public health mitigation measures. A spokesperson for the company said revenue had recovered after a pandemic dip, saying that sales were back to pre-pandemic levels. WeWork attempted an IPO a couple of years ago, but the deal imploded after investors lost confidence in its former CEO, Adam Newman, and its ambitious 47 billion dollar valuation. After its very public meltdown, the company pulled back and cut thousands of jobs. 
And now WeWork is looking to go public again, this time with a new CEO, real estate veteran Sandeep Mathrani, and on the NASDAQ via a $9 billion merger with a special purpose acquisition company, Boex Acquisition Corp. Sales of Boex rose about 7% on Tuesday after the executive chairman's comments. He also said the company's downtime caused by the pandemic gave them a chance to reinvent the company. Now, as more employers experiment with bringing workers back to the office on flexible schedules and sometimes in remote locations, WeWork said it's ready. Global market research firm Ipsos is downsizing its Chicago office but doubling down on downtown, reimagining a post-pandemic future of workers and clients alike, both using workspace differently than they did before. Paris-based Ipsos confirmed that they've signed a lease for nearly 60,000 square feet at the Franklin at 222 West Adams in the Loop. The firm plans to relocate its downtown office early next year from its longtime space at 222 South Riverside, exercising a termination option on its lease for over 77,000 square feet there. Ipsos president and chief client officer Claire Hanlon told Cranes that the company had been looking to consolidate its local staff into a new office to integrate workers from local business units it had acquired from rivals and said that the pandemic allowed them to accelerate the speed at which they could do that. She also said that instead of building out desk space at its new office to accommodate all of the company's nearly 400 Chicago-based workers, Ipsos is planning more of what they described as social spaces with its small overall footprint and user experience lab areas where it will work with clients. Danny Ecker is reporting the story in detail for Cranes. The group behind this proposal has been incredibly aggressive in Fulton Market. They've got one spec office building under construction, another one proposed, a 433-unit apartment tower they're seeking city approval for, and now this, which would be their biggest Fulton Market project to date. This is the kind of activity we haven't seen from maybe any other developer in the city during the pandemic when it's been so difficult to finance new construction projects given the uncertain recovery. So we'll see whether these guys land a financial partner to actually develop this as they envision. This is the third try by a developer for the property over the past three and a half years. The first two proposals to redevelop the block couldn't get financing and zoning approvals to line up. Now Fulton Street is trying its hand, and uh, unlike the first two proposals, this one is heavy on apartments, whereas when the last two were proposed, residential uses were banned north of Lake Street in Fulton Market. So we'll see whether that may be the catalyst for something actually happening here. Bank of America will up its minimum hourly wage to $25 an hour by 2025 from a current $20 an hour. That according to CEO Brian Moynihan. And that follows four years of pay increases that brought the company's minimum wage to its current $20 an hour in 2020, up from $15 an hour before that. Moynihan said in an interview on CNN that the Charlotte-based lender will also require its U.S. vendors to pay workers dedicated to the bank $15 per hour or more. The bank said in a separate statement that of more than 2,000 vendors with 43,000 workers, over 99% of them already meet that pay threshold. Bank of America employs more than 5,500 people in the Chicago area. And many companies, especially retail, fast food, and ride-hailing companies, are offering higher wages and cash bonuses to workers as the U.S. economy rebounds from the pandemic. These incentives represent a slow but steady march toward a goal that lawmakers and labor activists have pursued for years with limited success, a higher minimum wage approaching $15 an hour. Moynihan told CNN that the key is for big companies to set a standard.
And that's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Our continuous news feed lives at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. Be sure to subscribe to these conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your audio on demand. And find hashtag Crane's Daily Gist on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And let's continue talking there about these and other business stories. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.